It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's session 12 uh, in the series called Spiritual Lessons from World War I. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think you've heard me enough in the past few weeks say that I wasn't expecting to give this message. Uh, a few of these I you sort of had a rough hewn outline of, but they've taken on a different character than I originally intended. This would be sort of a symbol of that. And uh, I, I feel like I'm having a tough time starting the war. The war has begun, okay? We had the invasion of Germany into Belgium. Uh, technically, Hungary has been at war with Serbia, but ironically, that almost feels like a separate issue. I don't know why, but most people even in that study World War I, you know, it's just sort of like, yeah, that's happening, but that's, that's sort of a war between Hungary and Serbia because of that, uh, that bullet. Remember the, the gunshot by Gavrilo Princip? Yeah, yeah, okay, that. But then everything else that's taking place that's involving the rest of the world feels like the World War. And so the invasion of Belgium on August 4th of 1914 is going to trigger a ripple effect uh, around the world. And the violation of Belgium is actually going to awaken and stir the British Empire. And that is something that many historians are going to look back on and say, that was one really dumb move on the part of the Germans. They were hoping that Belgium would just stand aside. But when Belgium didn't stand aside and the Germans start attacking in a military fashion with their devastating power, the Belgian people, the Belgium towns, they start killing people that would stand against them. They line up people and you know, shoot them down. It was some of the greatest atrocities. It's called the Rape of Belgium. Okay, You can just imagine how well that translated to the world. And so public opinion is going to go south for the Germans. And the British people who were dead set against entering this war are suddenly going to be stirred from their slumber. And so Germany has unwittingly now picked a fight with the greatest powers in the world. Russia has the most people. Great Britain has the most strength and power and financial uh, backing. And of course, France is just historically one of the greatest military powers in all of Europe. In fact, they've dominated Europe for, for many, many years. They've just lost their edge as of late. And so you, know, you could look at Germany and go, that, that doesn't seem very smart. But remember, in the German mind, there's logic and there's reasoning. And of course, once they got this thing started, they can't stop it. And so, at least in their mind, I'm just hinting back to the, the message that I mispronounced the name. You guys remember that one? Uh, I said the in, inexorable force, but it's the inex, inexorable, inex, inexorable, inexorable. See, that, I can't even say it in the proper way. It just doesn't come out right. Uh, so the inexorable force. And that's the idea that many of us have that once sin begins or once the inclination starts, there's no stopping, which is, goes, flies directly in the face of how the gospel works. Jesus has created a means of escape. He has given us the avenue of, of gaining liberty in our life. And so, so much of the world is caught in a fog bank at this moment. And so we're going to now go to a different country that we haven't spent a tremendous amount of time in. When we did the Old Contemptibles message, we talked about the British soldiers, the BEF, and their attitude towards coming over to 
the, the continent, if you will, to the European landscape and fighting uh, the, the Germans in the Battle of Mons. And so that we, we've sort of visited the British mentality a little, and we also have hinted that Great Britain didn't have Alsace, and they didn't have an Albert. They didn't really have a reason to get involved in this other than a treaty that says we will defend the neutrality of Belgium and a, sort of like a handshake deal with the French. And so the people of Great Britain are not inclined to being a part of a war. Uh, let them fight it out. In fact, you know, that might be better for us in the long run. It only strengthens Great Britain's power when everyone else begins to harm each other. And yet Great Britain will get into this war and if they didn't, the landscape of world history is completely different. And so you could look at it and say, well, maybe that would have been good if, the, if Europe had been controlled by the Germans. Maybe that would have been good. And that, that's a very arguable thing. I mean, I, I can't place a value on that or make much of a statement because a lot of the evil that came out of World War II, I would have loved to avoid in history. And so it, the, the playing the what-if game in history is a weird thing. It's like, I don't know if that's how God wants us to play it. It's like, well, but what if? Because crying over spilled milk usually doesn't cause the milk to get back into the, uh, the jar. And so it didn't happen. Great Britain did come in, and it altered the course of history. Because there's no way the French could have stood against the Germans all by their lonesome. And so I'm going to go into that background just a little. And this message hits very, very close to home for me. Uh, it's a very, very dear and central theme in my life, in my function as a leader, in the way that Ellerslie is built. And so you'll understand even more about me as we go through this message. Really like the title too, part 12, Simply Churchillian. So if ever there's a, a, a great quote that has sort of that romance and the epic uh, nature to it, you could call it a Churchillian quote, right? It's very Churchillian. Well, what does that mean? So it's referencing a character that I have a fondness for in history, Winston Churchill, who comes out in this story because he's a player in the story. He's the minister of the Navy uh, in Great Britain at this time. And uh, he is, he's sort of a younger version of himself. And he's an, he's an interesting character in World War I. And I'm using a lot of his memoirs from World War I, but he's not going to come into his own. And so when I talk about something being Churchillian, I'm sort of talking about an older version of Winston Churchill, even though the younger version is still really fun to study and very interesting. When he comes into his own and he gets his gray hair going, and he recognizes the significance of what it means to stand, even if no one agrees with him, there is going to be this Churchillian moments in World War II that is going to be so, I mean, it's just like tingles up the spine, what this man is going to do for his nation and for the world. And many people standing on, I mean, he's literally considered, if not the greatest, the greatest man of the last 100 years. And there's a reason for that. And it's on the, the landscape of human history, this man stood in such a unique role and played such a unique part. And in a sense, there is sort of a Churchillian character in World War I. He doesn't quite have the same stature. Like in my mind, I'm not going to go off and want to brag about you know, my middle name having anything associated with him. In other words, I'm not overly impressed personally, but he plays sort of a similar role. And his name is Horatio Kitchener. Isn't that a great uh, name? Horatio. 
But uh, part 12, simply Churchillian. So here's a definition that I'm going to give for Churchillian, which will help you in how I'm using it in this message. That which comes as the obvious but unexpected answer to a dilemma. You see, when Churchill steps into his role in World War II, it is an obvious thing. You know, once you start looking, it's like it's obvious he should be playing this part. He's the one guy that has been standing against Hitler the whole time. And yes, he's a great wartime leader. For whatever reason, he grows 10 feet taller in a time of war. So it's obvious, but it's unexpected at the same time. Why? Because no one wanted him in this position. There were two sides to the government, just like we have, the liberal side and the conservative side, and both of them didn't really like Churchill. Why? Well, because he'd been a part of both parties and left both parties because he can't quite identify with either party. It's like, well, which party are you? You have to be one of two parties. And in a sense, one of the best ways to describe Churchill is he refuses to be defined by a party. He wants to be defined by what is true. And so I'm giving you a little nutshell right there that is a secret to this message. In other words, everything in our world wants to divide you into a party. And when you follow party lines, you end up being a part of party division. And party division is the exact opposite of the nature of how God wired us to function. It is actually a principle of sin at work in us to create division and to identify us in accordance with a party against others, as opposed to knowing how to unite and rally together to accomplish what God put us here on earth to do. So that which comes is the obvious but unexpected answer to a dilemma. So there's our guy, Winston Churchill. But this is going to be out of his memoir, so he hasn't started becoming the Churchillian leader yet, right? Even when he's writing this, he's just giving his memoirs from World War I. And so it's interesting just to think that I can quote this guy to get like some great ideas, even for describing what we call simply Churchillian. So this is a very fascinating series of quotes that I have for you guys. It is greatly to be hoped that British political leaders will never again allow themselves to be goaded and spurred and driven by each other or by their followers into the excesses of partisanship, which on both sides disgraced the year 1914. Now, what's weird is if you put the year 2022 in there instead of 1914, it would sound like he could be talking about our government. In other words, we are being goaded and spurred on towards something called partisanship, where we think of things from party lines and cannot possibly get in the skin of someone else. In fact, to try and get in the skin of someone else and to try and understand their perspective is traitorous to your side. And this was a very, very common thing, deeply inbred at this time in 1914, which, if you know the history of World War I, 1914 is a pretty critical year. And Britain is falling to pieces internally at this exact juncture of history. The pending civil war in Great Britain, the year, mm-hmm, 1914. So they're literally on the verge, not altogether dissimilar from our verge that we have in our country in a civil war type of situation. In other words, the nation itself is fracturing within. And what is causing it? Division. What is causing that? Clear party lines. 
where the two can no longer communicate. They can't even be in the same room together. They cannot converse with such an idiot. I mean, if someone is going to have that conclusion, that kind of thinking, then I am going to write them off as if they don't exist. And I'm going to wish for their quick demise, their quick uh, death. In other words, when you start wishing and desiring for the death of your opponents, you know that something has taken a hold of you. And I've seen that many times in this uh, culture that we live in, where I've heard many, many strong statements of a desire for disaster to strike those that have an opposite opinion of you. I'm not going to give any direct quotes to that, but I just want that to linger in the air. So here's Winston Churchill. He says, no one who has not been involved in such contentions can understand the intensity of the pressures to which public men are subjected or the way in which every motive in their nature, good, bad, and indifferent, is marshaled in the direction of further effort to secure victory. The vehemence with which great masses of men yield themselves to partisanship and follow the struggle as if it were a prize fight, their ardent enthusiasm, their glistening eyes, their swift anger, their distrust and contempt if they think they are to be balked of their prey, the sense of wrongs mutually interchanged, the the extortion and enforcement of pledges, the infectious loyalties, the praise that waits on violence, the chilling disdain, the honest disappointment, the cries of treachery with which every proposal of compromise is hailed, the desire to keep good faith with those who follow, the sense of right being on one side, the harsh, unreasonable actions of opponents, all these acting and reacting reciprocally upon one another tend toward the perilous climax. Now that's a Churchill quote right there. It has a lot packed into it. I've read it through multiple times, and it's like, well, that is one quote. It's politics is what he's describing. That's what we know it as. And, you know, when, when they talk about civilian leadership, it's different, you know, because they have military leadership and civilian leadership. And that's a term that in Great Britain at this time was the way that they would describe it. We just have politicians. That's the way we look at it. And so you have normal people and then you have the politicians, which are usually lawyers, right, that became politicians. And so we have our terminology very similarly. However, the pressures on these people is immense. And that's what he's saying. If you've never been one in in this situation, you don't understand the extreme pressure because from the outside, you're just looking in and going, just vote with your conscience. Well, it's not that easy, guys. I mean, this you get caught in a, a wave, You get caught in some force that is hard to describe what it is and how it carries you along, but it leads to a vehemence and a spite and a hatred because they throw mud on your face and you can't just sit there and, you know, kindly wipe the mud off your face. No, you pick up a pile of mud yourself and toss it in theirs. And even though when you got into politics, you said, I will not participate in such things, you find yourself carried along by a momentum which is defined as a two-party system. Those parties are designed, in a sense, to hate one another. And the more you spike the punch, the greater the hate to the point where you can actually draw swords. It's happened many times in politics. And things can happen. Civil wars can take place. This quote continues. So if you're the politician, he's referencing that, to fall behind is to be a laggard or a weakling not sincere, not courageous. To get in front of the crowd, if only to command them and to deflect them, prompts often very violent action. So if you're not going to participate, well, then you're a laggard and a weakling. 
And if you do participate to try and stem the tide and you get in front to you know, try and lead the way, well, then the violence is heaped on you. And at a certain stage, it is hardly possible to keep the contention within the limits of words or laws. Force, that final arbiter, that last soberer may break upon the scene. So I love the way Winston Churchill writes. I don't know if all of you can appreciate it because some people just hear him say things and they're like, okay, I have no idea what he just said. It's really good. Great Britain's vulnerability, what is it? Division within. Now we have a war that is starting. Great Britain can't hardly get its game on because it can't agree on anything. And so if you get to the issue of what should you do about our agreement with France and our neutrality with Belgium, do you think they're going to get an easy answer from, from that parliament? In other words, from any sector. You ask the military and they're divided. You ask the, the parliament, they're divided. The government is split on everything. And so, but what is needed for war is a commonality of view. You need unity in your nation to fight as a nation against a common opponent. And if you make yourself the opponent, you have problems within. So the frocks and the boneheads. Now, if, unless you're from Great Britain, I don't even know if they use these phrases anymore, but this was the phrase back in 1914, the frocks and the boneheads. How is this going to work? So these guys are all going to come together and you're going to have a war council, which is made up half of civilian leadership and half of military leadership. And you could just imagine, you know, not only do the civil leaders not get along, the military leaders don't get along. So now you're going to take the greatest separation, which is the military leaders and the civilian leaders, and you're going to put them in one room and say, we need to solve this dilemma of what we do. Because Germany just invaded Belgium, which we have a treaty to protect their neutrality. So on paper, we are liable to come to their aid. Okay, now we have a whole bunch of issues, just sparks flying everywhere. So this is what Barbara Tuckman says. Within the army, field officers despise staff officers. So this is within the army, okay? So even if you're a field officer, then you look at a staff officer, you know, pfft. If you're a staff officer, you look at a field officer, pfft. And this is what uh, the field officers despise staff officers is having the brains of canaries and the manners of Potsdam. I don't know what the manners of Potsdam is, but I have a hunch it's not good, right? But both groups were as one in their distaste for interference by civilian ministers. So the military, you know, they don't get along, right? But to have one of these guys who thinks he knows what he's talking about, one of these politicians come in and weigh in on military matters, okay, both of them are in, are in agreement, okay, that... Uh, that the interference by civilian ministers, who were known as the frocks, uh, the, the civil arm in its turn referred to the military as the boneheads. So the civilian leaders, the politicians as we would know them, you know, called the military leaders the boneheads, you know, which of course is going to be synonymous with idiots. The other ones, the frocks, I don't know if that's referring to, you know, those, those nice hairdos or because or, I, oh, it's, it's something else, huh? Is it fancy clothing? Okay, the frocks, uh, that's the fancy clothing. But obviously the empty brain, the fancy clothing, you know, that, that sort of concept. It's not a compliment, is what we're going to say. Mysterious option number three. Now, 
I'm going to build on this mysterious option number three over and over and over again throughout this message. But in World War II, you have mysterious option number three. His name is Winston Churchill. Okay, who's going to lead the government right now? Because the liberals can't seem to get their act together. The conservatives can't seem to get their act together. The, the government is like on meltdown in World War II, too. Okay, so we're just talking 20 years later, 24 years later, technically. And, but there's one guy that stands apart from the system that the liberals really don't know how to deal with and the conservatives don't know how to deal with. It's mysterious option number three. His name is Winston Churchill. And so here we are. We have a mysterious option number three in this situation. No one gets along. The military and the civilian leaders at a war council, you can just imagine what that's going to be like. And in walks what uh, I think, uh, who was it? It was Barbara Tuckman calls a colossus of a man. So Winston Churchill says it this way. Oh, actually, this is going back to right before World War II, I'm sorry, World War II. Let's get my wars correct. World War I. So right before 1914, we have a huge problem in the Navy. This is, this is like a global problem in Great Britain at this time. This is a huge issue in the Navy. The Navy, which is their strongest military arm, they have the most powerful mil uh, Navy in the world, and uh, Winston Churchill is inheriting this. So this is the problem Winston Churchill is stepping into. A deplorable schism was introduced into the Royal Navy, which spread to every squadron and to every ship. There were Fisher's men, that's Lord uh, John Fisher, and Barraford's men, that's Lord Charles Barraford. So you have one who's the first Lord of the Navy, and then you have the other who's a commander-in-chief. And these guys hate each other, and you have to pick a side. If you're in the Navy, which one are you? You want a Fisher's men, or you want a Barraford's men? And that tells everyone something about you. So, oh, I see what your worldview is. I understand how you function. Whatever the first sea lord, Fisher, proposed, the commander-in-chief, Beresford, opposed. And through the whole of the service captains and lieutenants were encouraged to take one side or the other. The argument was conducted with technicalities and with personalities. Neither side was strong enough to crush the other. I don't know if you guys are having flashbacks to 2022, but this is similar to where we're at. Our government is set up to not easily just fall prey to one side or the other, but that doesn't mean it's healthy uh, always. I'm, I'm glad we have checks and balances. Sometimes we're, some of us are wondering if our checks and balances are really working right now. However, we're supposed to have checks and balances. And the same thing, it's sort of like this. Neither side could win. Neither side was strong enough to overhaul the other. But as a result, there was a deep divide which was, which was almost going to cause the Navy to fall to pieces. The Admiralty had its backers in the fleet, and the fleet had its friends in the Admiralty. Both sides, therefore, had good information as to what was passing in the other camp. The lamentable situation thus created might easily have ruined the discipline of the Navy, but for the fact that a third large body of officers resolutely refused at whatever cost to themselves to participate in the struggle. Isn't that an interesting statement? So Churchill, in taking on this challenge of leading the Navy, is going to recognize he's inheriting a huge problem. And he is going to say that the reason the Navy didn't fall apart is because there was a third group that refused to participate in being one of Fisher's men or Barraford's men. But if you did that, you received a different sorts of challenge. 
because you were not willing to play sides. Silently and steadfastly, they went about their work till the storms of partisanship were passed. Listen to what Churchill says. To these officers, a debt is due. So are you going with option one? Are you one of Fisher's men? Or are you going to be one of Barraford's men? You have to choose. Well, and there's mysterious option number three. And that is the brilliance of not participating in that which fans into flame the problem. There is a secret power to, to uh, mysterious option number three. And so one of the things, when I said this is a kernel issue for me in my life, this is how we set up Ellerslie. There are so many division points in the body of Christ. And I am interested, not in option one or option two, I'm interested in mysterious option number three. I'm interested in the one that binds us together, not in the one that tears us apart. So the splits. So this is literally uh, right at the time of World War I. We have Fisher's men versus Barraford's men. Okay, If you're in the Navy, then you would have been a part of that whole nonsense. You have liberals versus conservatives in Parliament. Okay, Deep divide, can't even talk with each other. You have military staff officers versus military field officers, which cannot get along and think the others are an idiot. And then you have civilian leadership versus military leadership. And they can hardly even coexist together. The civilian leadership, the politicians, think the, the military leaders just have no idea how to truly understand the, the politics and the scope of what they're a part of. They just want to go out and kill someone. And they need to understand that this is a tenuous world out there, and they need to work within it. And the military leaders are like, do you want us to win a war or not? You can't just tell us how to do this. This is our specialty. We've spent our life learning how to fight and win wars. You tell us it's wartime, we, let us do our job. And so you have this tension. The threat arrives, July 1914. It's in the air. You can feel it. It's dense. It's thick. Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. Germany is amassing a force. Russia declares war. Well, actually, Russia didn't declare war. Let me correct that. They mobilize uh, into action. Germany declares war on France and then begins to march into Belgium. Okay, all of this is happening. End of July, early August. So this is Winston Churchill. He recognizes that there's a threat to the military storehouse. If you were the enemy, what would you want to go after if you could secretly, because there's a lot of potentially German spies even in the country. And up to this point, they've had a good relationship with Germany. Why should they you know, think otherwise? But suddenly there's this panic and this thought that all of our magazines or our collection of munitions for the Navy are all very vulnerable right at this exact moment. In other words, if you knew the right place at the right time, they're not guarded with extra security. So you could literally destroy all the munitions for the Navy, which is the most powerful Navy in the world. And Winston Churchill has one of those moments where he suddenly just like feels it. And he realizes that if this German operation has been cunning and has been thinking this through beforehand, why wouldn't they go after his munitions? And so as the minister of the Navy, well, actually, he wasn't even the minister of the Navy at this, this moment yet. He is just a civilian leader when this happens. He says, well, the first, so he, he's getting in touch with the Navy to make sure that they protect it. And he's just a, a politician, right? But he has authority. 
While the first lord and the first sea lord of the navy were otherwise occupied, an admiral, he shall be nameless, was in control. I demanded Marines at once to guard these magazines, this, this storehouse of munitions, vital to the Royal Navy. I knew there were plenty of Marines in the depots at Chatham and Portsmouth. The admiral, admiral replied over the telephone that the admiralty had no responsibility and no intention of assuming any. And it was clear from his manner that he resented the intrusion of an alarmist civilian minister. And this is Winston Churchill. He says, you refuse then to send the Marines? After some hesitation, he replied, I refuse. So you can see how delicate the situation is when the civilian minister that sees the need globally, he understands the politics. This other guy is like, who are you to tell me what to do with the military? No, I will not secure these munitions. Now, Winston Churchill is going to say, and everything turned out fine, he did call the police and had the police go <laughs> to protect them. However, he's like, okay, it was a false alarm. But do you blame me for doing whatever needs to happen? But you see the weakness in their government at this exact time. It's like, what if Germany was after those munitions? The whole war, the whole landscape the last hundred years has just changed in one move. Listen to how Winston Churchill describes the secret to a dominant navy. In the government of a great fighting service, there must always be the combination of the political and professional authorities. A strong first sea lord to carry out a vigorous policy needs the assistance of a minister who alone can support him and defend him. The authority of both is more than doubled by their union. What he's saying is that for a strong navy, you must have both the military and the civilian leadership working in harmony. And if you have that, their strength is more than doubled in working together. Okay, now what you're getting is the principle of any military operation working well together. You see, what the enemy wants to do is divide our strengths because there's strength in the military arm, there's strength in the governmental or civilian or political arm, and you need both of them working together. And that's what Winston Churchill is saying. The problem with what is happening in this hour is they are splintered, and they can't work together. So the civilian, the civilian political arm says, hey, we have a threat that we know of, and we need to protect our munitions. And the other arm is like, that's none of our business. You know, we're not going to take any orders from you. They're not working together, and as, of the, as a result, they're harming one another. Lord Horatio Kitchener, mysterious option number three. Who would have ever guessed? What do you do at a time like this where no one can communicate? When the civilian leadership and the military leadership can't seem to get along? Well, I don't know who came up with the idea of bringing in Lord Horatio Kitchener, but that was a unique idea. So there he is, guys. He's famous for his like handlebar mustache. It became like legendary. In fact, in there, you know, like we have the Uncle Sam posters here in the United States, you know, the point where like, we want you. That's where it came from, is this guy. So that was World War I, is this guy on a poster with his finger pointing at you, basically saying, I don't know if it was, we want you, but it was something similar to that, right? On August 5th, this is Barbara Tuckman. on August 5th, their first day of the war, so Great Britain has now declared war, the committee convened as a war council at four o'clock that afternoon. It included the usual civilian as well as military leaders and one splendid colossus taking his seat among them for the first time, who was both. 
He was both a civilian leader and he was a military man. And ironically, the civilian leadership, the politicians didn't trust him, didn't know if he was on the side of the military, and the military didn't trust him and didn't know if he was on the side of the civilian leaders. What you have is a Winston Churchill-type setup where neither side knows if he's going to be on their side, but he's not on either side. He's on a, he's mysterious option number three. He's after Britain's health. He's not trying to play politics, and he's not trying to pacify the military leaders or pacify the civilian leaders. And so it's interesting that in both wars, you're going to get this character that rises out of nowhere, that's going to take his seat on the war council as the minister of war, that is going to, in a sense, shockingly surprise everyone. No one is happy that he's in the position. The civilian leaders are like, great, we got Horatio uh, in the room. And then the military leaders are like, yeah, he's supposed to be one of ours, but he's a politician now. And so as a result, they're both not feeling comfortable with this, and he was the man for the hour. The Churchillian moment of World War I, when the nation needed an answer. Winston Churchill says it this way, Lord Kitchener now came forward to the cabinet. On almost the first occasion after he joined us and in soldierly sentences, proclaimed a series of inspiring and prophetic truths. Everyone expected that the war would be short, but wars took unexpected courses, and we must now prepare for a long struggle. Such a conflict could not be ended on the sea or by sea power alone. It could be ended only by great battles on the continent. In these, the British Empire must bear its part on a scale proportionate to its magnitude and power. We must be prepared to put armies of millions in the field and maintain them for several years. In no other way could we discharge our duty to our allies or to the world. So what Winston Churchill is describing is a Churchillian moment. Little does he know that, that he's describing a Churchillian moment. But this guy is going to stand up, this robust you know, man of great frame and you know, quite the beard or quite the mustache, is going to stand up and he is going to speak with such stirring uh, you know, passion to everyone there about the fact that this is a war that is going to demand millions of soldiers and is going to take three years at least to raise up millions of soldiers and to fight this battle. It will not be won quickly. And everyone is shocked by even such sentiments, because everyone at that time, if you remember William II, you know, I'll you know, see you home, boys, before the leaves fall. And then Joseph Joffre, when they're talking about ordering metal caps, is like, there's no need. You know, the war will not last long enough for them to even get to the front lines. And so as a result, both sides, the French and the German, are both expecting very, very quick work. And yet Lord Horatio Kitchener comes in and is going to give the British what is most needed, the truth. He's going to tell them that they need to raise up millions of men. They have a, they have a BEF, their British Expeditionary Force, 60 to 70,000 men. They have six divisions. The Germans, 70. The French, 70. The British, let me remind you, six. And as a result, instead of just going over and sh- you know, punching the Germans in the nose and saying, get out, go back home, Lord Kitchener is going to speak the truth. We need to take the power of the British Empire and use it to save the world. I mean, it's actually really inspiring if you were to think about it, okay? It's pretty amazing that this guy is going to have the foresight to say something that no one in the world at that time saw. He's going to see it. Where did this guy come from? Well, he's not a, just a political guy. 
He's not a puppet of that machine, nor is he a, a puppet of the, uh, the, the establishment in the military. He's separate from both, and he's able to speak the truth in the very moment that's most needed. The frocks meet the boneheads, and somehow they need to make this work. We have a situation, not just in our country, which is a lot easier to discern, but before we started having animated challenge in our country, which we've always had, okay? We've had a two-party system my entire life, and we've had a lot of mudslinging all over the place. The Trump administration spiked the punch, Okay, that, that, and I'm not even going to blame it on the Trump administration, necessarily. I mean, this is like, this goes both ways, but that spiked punch. And the animosities have been so extreme. And both sides have wanted their opponents dead. Okay, that's not even really what I want to focus on, because that's, that's a subset. The Church of Jesus Christ has spiked punch. Where there are some people that will not even go into a church of certain denominations. Even though it's a, it's a speaker that's speaking there, I mean, this happened to me quite a few times. It's like, Eric, I would have come to hear you speak, but it was in such and such a church, and I just cannot go into such and such a church. You know, that denomination. You know, and I, I've heard these things my entire life. I know them very, very well. I understand the divisions in the church. And one of my passions is not to just say, hey, it's, I don't want you thinking clearly on your doctrine. I don't want you understanding those specifics. It's not that. It's that I want us to remember that there is something that unites us as opposed to fixating on what divides us. And as a result, we need a mysterious option number three. So Barbara Tuckman says it this way, Though a professional soldier, speaking of Kitchener, the most able I have come across in my time, said Lord Cromer, when Kitchener came out, of, out to command the Khartoum, that's an Egypt campaign, his career had lately been pursued at Olympian levels. He dealt in India, Egypt, empire, and large concepts only. Standing at a distance, he was able to view the war as a whole in terms of the relations of the powers and to realize the immense effort of national military expansion that would be required for the long contest about to begin. We must be prepared, he announced, to put armies of millions in the field and maintain them for several years. His audience was stunned and incredulous, but Kitchener was relentless. To fight and win a European war, Britain must have an army of 70 divisions, equal to the Continental Armies. And he had calculated that such an army would not reach full strength until the third year of war, implying the staggering corollary that the war would last that long. Why would you build an army of millions it takes three years to build if this war is going to be done in the fall? Basically, indirectly, he's saying it won't be done in the fall. We are going to prepare to win this thing. The surprising power of MO3. I almost named my entire message the surprising power of MO3. Mysterious option number three. What does mysterious option number three do? Whenever mysterious option number three steps into the room and makes its case for the truth that is not partisan, it's just true. In other words, it's not trying to uh, pay back uh, some scratch on the back that you received from another politician earlier. I'll give a vote to this. Why? Because I promised that I'd vote for this if they voted for this. You see, an MO3 has no obligation to pay back a scratched back. It does what is right and what is true, and it cuts through fog. And when that voice speaks in the room, it reminds the audience. It sort of awakens them from a stupor. 
as opposed to they're living down here in a lower level of thought, and it elevates them to think once again at a higher platitude. It reminds, it gently corrects, it melts away ridiculous antagonisms, it refocuses, it unites. Now, it doesn't mean that works 100% of the time for everyone, but it really can. In MO3, as I'm calling it, mysterious option number three, is not along party lines. It's along truth lines. So Zechariah 4.6 is going to sort of talk, I'm using this scripture in sort of a fun way, is going to talk about sort of the party lines and then the MO3. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we're right in the middle of a very unique vision that Zechariah is seeing in regarding candlesticks and uh, a bowl. And what you're going to see is two olive trees that are supplying something, that there is endless supply for Israel to be able to accomplish its task. And so what you're going to see is the conclusion that this statement to Zerubbabel, which I don't have time to go into, Zerubbabel, he's of the Davidic line of kings in the line, Jesus is going to be a descendant of Zerubbabel, okay? And he is like a Christ figure in so many regards. But not by might, nor by power. How is this going to be accomplished? How do we find the sustenance, the satisfaction, the sufficiency of God for our need? Because we have a dilemma, and there's no way we can get out of this. What is the secret? Well, here's the secret. It's not going to be by might, nor by power. You see, it's not according to a party line. Now, let's break that up because that sounds like we're saying the same thing. It's like not by strength or by muscle. And we're like, aren't those the same thing? Not by might nor by power. And I've had that same thought when I look at this scripture many times. It's like, what? Why don't we come up with something different, like not by might nor by chicken feed? You know, at least two different things that you're not thinking are the same. Instead, they sound like the same exact thing. So I'm going to give you more of an expanded understanding to take that first concept of might and say that it better is described as sort of a host or the strength of an army, okay? So not by the force of an army of men. And the second one can be more strength of a human personality, like the individual aptitude, the Churchill, the Kitchener, the type of thing where one man can make a difference. And so not by the force of an army of men, nor by the force of human personality, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, there's always two. I don't know if you've ever heard me say that. But there's a flesh solution, and there is a spirit solution. I want you to look at that spirit up there on the board as being the one that comes from God. In other words, there's a solution that could come from man, and it can look impressive. However, God is the one that ultimately is going to solve the dilemma. Okay, you could look at your human frailty and say, uh, God, how in the world can I be supplied for? How can I find salvation? What must I do to be saved? And there's two options. You could work really hard and try and work up your salvation, or you could just depend on the fact that God will be merciful in the end. Okay, these are two human results that have constantly been in existence on planet earth. It's like to just sort of go brain dead and say, oh, you know, I'll be fine. I'm a good person. The other one is to try and prove yourself a good person through your own works. And as a result, God could say to us, not by either of those, it's going to be done by me. It's mysterious option number three. Humans will divide into their camps. You could look at any camp and you're going to see, and this is going to be hard for some of you that 
have a tough time seeing any virtue in the liberal, for instance, because you're a conservative. But there are virtues in both sides. Now, sometimes you have to strain uh, to see it and squint really hard, right? However, for instance, those that want to defend uh, the LGBTQ plus community, one of their grievances is actually very real, and that is that they have been mistreated, that the church or the right wing has been harsh and demeaning and desirous of them to just be obliterated. And that is based on real things. In other words, that's a real grievance which causes people to stand on behalf of something that maybe ideologically they wouldn't, but they actually are moved by compassion more than they are morality. Do you see the difference between compassion and morality? If your instinct and inclination is, is compassion, then even if something violates your morality, compassion can rule inside of you, which tends to make you more liberal in your bent. When morality tends to be your strength point, you have a tendency to eliminate sometimes your compassion to stand for what you say is the right way. And I just divided things into liberal and conservative right there. And yet there's a positive in both. In other words, there's an instinctive positive that when it's cultivated properly, if you were to extract it and harvest it out and say, could I take that compassion? Could I take that desire for righteousness and that morality right there? And we could take them out. That's what Mysterious Option 3 does. It harvests the strength and brings it into a center point of truth. So I'm going to give some options for Zechariah 4.6 that I'm going to say are altered, they're adapted, okay? And in the parentheses are what I'm going to switch out might and power for, the two options, the two-party system that will not save, okay? Neither will, neither will save. If we had a conservative president, I, you know, I tend to lean conservative, right? If we had a conservative president, that doesn't save our nation. It's not by a liberal president. It's not by a conservative president. The, what we need is the spirit solution for this hour. We need revival. We need Jesus at the center of this country. That is what saves us. Mysterious option number three. All right, so here's Zechariah 4.6 again with an adaptation. Not by the force of a human king, nor by the force of a human priest, but by my spirit, Jesus, the king and, king and priest, says the Lord of hosts. So what you're going to see in each of these is I am going to give a solution that I'm going to say is spirit. That solution is going to strangely sound familiar each time. It's going to be Jesus. Okay, so what you're going to see is in the two-party system of the Jews, you have the, the different one, the law giver and the law keeper, and they're going to be at odds with one another. The kingdom and the, and the rulership of kings and the priests oftentimes are at odds one with the other. And you have a tendency to take a side. Both are God-given. Both have a virtue, but both can go corrupt. And so as a result, it's not going to be by a king or by a priest of the earthly sense. It is going to be by a king and a priest of a heavenly descent. His name is Jesus Christ. The next one. Not by the might of law, nor by the power of prophecy, but by my spirit, who is Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, law and prophets, that's the entirety of the Old Testament, right? And there they're going to be at the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're going to both bend their knee and say, that's what saves. The law and the prophets are summed up in this. This Christ who is going to come is going to fulfill 
law, and prophecy. He is actually the solution. But to keep the law or to know the prophecies aren't the secret. It is actually to allow the law to be a signpost to lead you. The prophecies to be a signpost that leads you to the one that can fulfill. All right, here's another rendition. Not by the force of human compassion, nor by the force of human morality, liberal, conservative, but by my spirit, Jesus, the morally perfect and sacrificial lamb of God, says the Lord of hosts. So if you're looking for compassion, look no further than the cross. If you're looking for moral rightness, look no further than the cross. What you have is a perfect, spotless lamb of sacrifice. God so loved us that he gave so what we have is the composite. We are extracting, we're harvesting out that which is virtuous in both of these inclinations and saying, but it's not found in option one or option two. It's found in mysterious option number three. And by the way, his name is Jesus. So not by the force of human justification, nor by the force of human works, but by my spirit, Jesus, the savior, redeemer, and rescuer of the world says the Lord of hosts. So there's an inclination of men, and even in the church we could see this. There's a whole side of the church that self-justifies as, oh, God's love. We all end up in heaven anyways. It's a whole movement in modern Christianity. It's this sappy, soft thing, right? But then you have the opposite side, which many of you are familiar with too, which feels like, okay, I see the standard of righteousness, and God, I am going to live up to that to please you. And so as a result, it's either by self-justification, I'm fine, or it's by being justified by our own works. God, I'm doing this for you. Neither one will save you. There is mysterious option number three, M-O-3, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who can justify you, the one whose work is sufficient for you. When MO3 walks into the room, it cuts through the fog. It elevates the thinking. It's obvious when you see it. It's like, that is so true. <laughs> That's what you say when MO3 walks into the room. That is so true. What have I been thinking about? You're, you're caught in your petty antagonisms. And MO3 busts through that and lifts us above that to see clearly again. Here's another one. This will stir you up. Not by getting a vaccine, nor by the avoidance of a vaccine, but by my spirit, Jesus the magnificent healer, says the Lord of hosts. The church, and that's why I gave multiple messages on the vaccine dilemma. It's, it was a dilemma. And it's a really hard thing as a leader to know how to deal with. Because there are genuine people in the church, okay? I, I mean, people I respect highly that said, if you get the vaccine as a moral prerogative, because that's the way you love one another. If you don't get the vaccine, you're not loving one another. And then you have the opposite side, which says, if I truly love you, I would not get the vaccine because then I'm going to shed all over you all these things. And by the way, if I just die because I got the vaccine, how is that loving anyone? I'm carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have a complex challenge that is being thrust upon us. And if we go into parties, we split. And many churches split over this mask wearing, six foot social distancing, split over it. If we should actually gather or if we should have virtual church, split over these things. 
This is tender territory that is not altogether different than Great Britain in 1914. However, what we need is mysterious option number three. What do we rally around? What is that which unites us? In other words, can I be sensitive to the fact that you feel more comfortable wearing a mask? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you want me to be six feet apart to make you feel more comfortable, you know what? I will love you that way. That's really hard for some of you. Even as I'm saying it, you're like, I can't believe you'd ever do that. Go up and give him a hug. In fact, give him a kiss on the cheek. Be biblical. <laughs> and yet, the way we love, you know, love is not rude. We show a sensitivity one to the other. These are challenging issues, but we need mysterious option number three, not to divide into a camp. This is a camp-based culture that we live in, and we must not be played by it. What is MO3? It's the gospel of Jesus applied to each and every situation. That's what it is. Okay, when we apply truth, when we step in without party mentalities, there are certain things that you are supposed to think if you are a Democrat or if you're a Republican. There are certain conclusions you're supposed to have. Okay, and some of you may not care at all about guns or gun control or anything, but if you're a Republican, you know what you're supposed to say how you're supposed to vote. And so as a result, for all of these matters, we need to not follow party lines, but follow Christ lines. Truth needs to enter the room and speak clearly into all of these situations. And that's what matters most. The secret to a dominant Navy. Do you remember when I, I talked about what uh, Winston Churchill said about the secret to a dominant Navy? I'm going to change that, and I'm going to cross out dominant navy, and I'm going to say the secret to a triumphant and unified church. Now, I want you to listen to this quote afresh in light of that. In the government of a great fighting service, well, that's the church, there must always be the combination of the political and the professional authorities, or as we might say, those that lean this way and those that lean this way. Uh, for instance, you see two different groups in the church that are both very passionate about Scripture both very passionate about Jesus Christ, and yet they don't get along very well, okay? For instance, if I were to say it this way, the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and the Baptists, they don't oftentimes get along. The Baptists are really good at certain things. What? Doctrine. They've got it down. And what they're not very good at oftentimes is knowing what to do with the Holy Spirit other than shut them down, right? It's like, okay, we don't talk about that. The Charismatics have something going for them, but they also have some weaknesses, and that is that sometimes they're not very solid in their doctrine. So as a result, they can be run roughshod over by this freedom that they have in the Spirit and end up going weird, okay? Now, so if you're in one camp or the other, you know, and you have a tendency to call one a frock and one a bonehead. And as a result, what you see is mysterious option number three is actually what we need we need the Holy Spirit, guys, and we need to be workmen approved with the Scriptures. What if we didn't throw out one side or the other? Because you know, when you call someone who's really studious about Scripture the frozen chosen just because they want to use their mind, that doesn't help. <laughs> and the opposite is true. When you show someone who's saying, I want to heed the Spirit, I want to listen to the Spirit, I want to follow the Spirit, I believe He wants to lead me, I believe He wants to gift me to actually impact the world around me. It's like crazy nutcase. You see, they're going to go off and go wild like that. When in actuality, those two sides both have something blessed in them. 
And when you allow the scriptures to speak, the MO3 Jesus to step into the room and say, guys, I want one whole body. I want a right hand and a left hand to work together simultaneously to serve. Then we have something very, very special. So we need a strong first sea lord to carry out our vigorous policy, and they need the assistance of a minister who alone can support him and defend him. The authority of both is more than doubled by their union. And in the kingdom of heaven, it's exponentially multiplied in our union. And this is something that is easier to put on a screen than it is into practice. And yet it is something that for me, and we call it the Ellerslie experiment. We're like, okay, what do we need to do to participate in the MO3 option as opposed to the party lines? Because I, I know what I believe and I know what I don't believe. So when someone's toting around some weird thoughts, I don't really want to side with them and say, yeah, let's sponsor that. I understand where denominationalism comes from. I do. But I want to be the church of Jesus Christ the way God intended. Simply Churchillian. So I use the word simply on purpose. Because there's a, there's a, a verse in 2 Corinthians 11.3. It says it this way, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that word simplicity translates to singularity of focus. It's the MO3. In other words, I'm, I'm concerned that you will be beguiled into a party line and you will think it's either might or power that will deliver you, that will cause this thing to work, when in actuality, it's his spirit's answer. It is Christ. It is Jesus Christ, the one the Spirit reveals. That is the great secret of the church. Father, I pray that we would be willing to not be one of Fisher's men or Bereford's men, but that we would be the ones that are willing to stand apart and say, I will not participate in that antagonism. I want to be one of Christ's men. I want to do this for you, Lord Jesus, to see us work together. I want to be marked by both the compassion and the truth and the morality. I want the blend. I want to be that Churchillian answer in my generation. I want us as the church to be a Churchillian answer in our generation. Lord Jesus, we ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.